If you have your Bible, please turn to the book of Acts. We'll be continuing our series. And so we'll be in Acts 19 today, and we're actually looking at the entire chapter. Acts 19. And as we read, I'll kind of cheat and give you the the big idea ahead of time. In fact, let's just go there. Uh, Here's the big idea we're going to be looking for. The name of the Lord Jesus has the power to change everything. And we'll even show the the map now to Jeff. I know I'm like totally throwing it all off today. Um, So Ephesus, that's where Paul is. We showed you like five places on the map last time as he was moving all around. And then Ephesus is where our story ended up, the end of chapter 18, with Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila and God doing work there. And then Apollos went back over to Corinth. And now, in in the first verse of our text today, Paul's going to come to Ephesus. And then everything that happens in our text today is happening right there in Ephesus, in what's known then as Asia, um, in modern Turkey, across the sea from Greece. Okay, so that's, that's that. We can go, go back now. So we'll be looking for, as we read, the name of the Lord Jesus has the power to change everything. And so now let's look to the Lord together as he speaks to us through his word. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed, passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, They were baptized in or into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation... He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, 
brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus! Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Let us thank him for it and ask him to teach us by it today. Oh Lord, we thank you. That you have spoken to us by your word and that indeed you are speaking to us by your word. Holy Spirit, would you attend the word of the risen Christ among us today? That we would see that this is not just a story for the past, but a story of the Lord Jesus who lives even now. And who is Lord over all, even now, even if not everyone knows it yet. Would you help us on seeing him to give glory to the name of the Lord Jesus? Would we be those who proclaim that he is Lord of all? And by the help of your spirit, live like he is Lord of us. So, Spirit, would you come and help us now? Lead us, teach us, meet with us. And with the name of the Lord Jesus be lifted up among us today, tomorrow, and to the day of eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That big idea again is this. The name of the Lord Jesus. Did you catch it so many times in that text? The name of the Lord Jesus has the power to change everything. Indeed, there is power in Jesus' name. But as we've said earlier, almost a year ago in this series, in Acts 3, Jesus' name is not a magic word, right? We don't just walk in and go, Jesus, and everything magically fi fixes itself. It'd be nice to be able to do that, right, at work? <laughs> Jesus. Oh, look, systems work the way they're supposed to. That person's, like, completely different. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be great. Yes, Yes. Also at home. Yes. 
yeah, we, we've talked about before, it's like, you know, moms is like, I don't want any temptations. It's like, and you turn from praying, and, and your temptations are all right there in front of you. So whether it's at work, at home, whether it's in, in the whole world, it's not just saying Jesus. That's what these itinerant Jewish exorcists found out, right? There's not magic in pronouncing his name. It's not a magic word to be recited in order to get what you want and have things ordered exactly the way you think they should be. Invoking his name is about his identity, his character, his work. It's about who he is and what he accomplished. And so we want to see the name of the Lord Jesus in our text today. And we'll see it in several ways. First, we're going to see baptism into the name of the Lord Jesus. And this is in verses 1 through 7 at the beginning of our text. So while Apollos is in Corinth, as he went there in the last couple verses right before our chapter, then Paul comes over land and gets to Ephesus and finds some disciples. And he asked them if they received the Holy Spirit when they believed. And they said, we don't even know anything about that. What baptism were you baptized into? John's baptism. And you may remember that last week, the one knock on Apollos, who knew the scriptures, was powerful in his speech, who taught accurately about Jesus, the one knock on Apollos was that he only knew the baptism of John. And the text does seem pretty clear, though, that he, though he only knew the baptism of John, he knew about Jesus and faith in him that John was pointing to, as Paul tells these disciples in our text. We see in verse 25 of chapter 18 that he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of of John. And so you may remember that what he needed then was some further instruction, and that's exactly what Priscilla and Aquila provide for him. In verse 26, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. For these disciples, here in chapter 19, the situation seems to be a bit different. There's a connection for sure, but the situation's different. They don't just need a little teaching hey, let's, let's, let's tighten this up. Let's say this a little better. These disciples needed to trust in the one that John was testifying about. We see that in verse 4. As they say, they were baptized into John's baptism. Verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. He's the one. They're supposed to believe in. That was the point of John's ministry, after all. It's Jesus. John famously said, he must increase, I must decrease. His whole ministry was pointing to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when you believe in Jesus, you get baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. What they needed was repentance and faith. Faith in Jesus. Not just a repentance that says, I want to turn. It's a repentance that turns in faith toward Jesus. That's what Paul is teaching them here, and that is what they experience. Faith in who he is and what he has done through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his powerful resurrection. And after they're baptized, when Paul lays his hands on them, what happens? They experience the same sign that came upon believers at Pentecost in Acts 2 when the Spirit first came in power. The same sign that came on Cornelius and his household as the gospel went to the Gentiles for the first time in Acts 10 and 11. And here we see it again. Now, we don't see it every time that someone believes in Acts. So we don't want to make a whole doctrine out of this and say everyone who believes in Jesus and gets baptized is going to speak in tongues and prophesy. That's not the point of this text. It doesn't happen every time, even in Acts. So it's not trying to say this is what must happen. It's not something we look for whenever someone trusts in Jesus and is baptized. It's not the sign, but it does appear, as it has here in Acts, at significant moments where the new era collides with the old. 
right? That's what was happening at Pentecost. That's what was happening when the gospel is going to the Gentiles for the first time. And now here it is again with these 12 men and presumably families. So it could have been quite a little group of people who are hearing the good news about Jesus when before all they had known was turning away from sin. Here they trust in Jesus. The new era collides with the old. And that great sign is given to them. They were baptized in verse 5 into the name of the Lord Jesus. Being baptized into his name isn't just about a baptismal formula. In fact, our baptismal formula isn't only the name of the Lord Jesus. Right? The Lord himself gave us in the Great Commission a baptismal formula. We're to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So some would look at this text and go, well, we're just supposed to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And we are baptized in the name of Jesus. But the idea here is that we are bound up with him. We're baptized into him. We join him. We are identified now with him. In fact, that's what God sees now when he sees us. He doesn't see us. He sees Jesus. He doesn't see our struggles, our sins. When he's standing in judgment, he sees his son because we have been baptized into the name of Jesus. Our lives are bound up with him. Baptism shows our union with him in his death and his resurrection. Romans 6 lays that out the most clearly. We identify with him in his death and we are raised to walk in newness of life. It's a picture that we are in him. We are with him. We have life in his name. So we first see baptism into the name of the Lord Jesus, and there's power. There's baptism into the name of the Lord Jesus, and the Spirit comes. And then in verses 8 through 10, we see preaching in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul follows his regular pattern, goes into the synagogue, And here for three months, he's there speaking boldly. But then some are getting stubborn, continuing in their unbelief, starting to speak evil of the way. He's like, okay, we'll go. And he takes those disciples, those who are trusting in Christ, who belong to him, and he goes to the hall of Tyrannus, where he lectures daily, where he teaches daily. And he teaches for two months. Years. The text tells us in verse 10, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. What a testimony. He's preaching the name of the Lord Jesus, preaching salvation in Jesus, who is the Messiah. That's been his pattern all along, and it's what Apollos was doing here in Ephesus before Paul and probably they've already heard of Paulus, now they're hearing Paul and like, okay, enough of you guys. We don't, we don't want this. They're preaching in the name of Jesus, as always. And as in other cases, he was preaching along with demonstration of the Spirit and power. That's what he told those in Corinth. He's like, I was among you in weakness, but I was with you preaching in the demonstration of Spirit and power. In these next few verses, we see some power. This is an incredible story. Verses 11 to 17, where we see power in the name of the Lord Jesus. I love how it starts, verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. And we might think that's a little strange. Every miracle is kind of by definition extraordinary right? Miracles are things we don't see every day. They're beyond the normal. But it says here, extraordinary miracles. And really, the language underneath this saying, there were, there were no small mighty works. Like, and that happens a few times in the text. You can see it in the English as we go through with the two other places that he does that. There's no small mighty works. These are not even your everyday run-of-the-mill miracles. These are big. 
This is the kind of stuff that if someone told you it was happening now, you would tell them they need to get their head checked out. Right? You're being tricked, or you're crazy, or something. This was wild. Look at verse 12. What do these extraordinary miracles look like? So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched Paul's skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. This is not normal. Uh, And this is not intended uh, for us to make a doctrine out of this either. So we're not going to be praying over and blessing any handkerchiefs and mailing them out to our followers. So if you're watching, never mind. All right. We are not doing that, right? This isn't meant to be copycatted as we actually see in the very next verse, right? There's these incredible miracles. There's some guys who are like, man, this Jesus name, that, that's, where, that's where it's at. But they don't know Jesus, right? And it works out about as well as Batman copycats. Like, I'm going to be tough like him. And it's not good. They know that it's not about Paul, right? They've seen or heard enough to know the formula, And this is important for us to think about. They know the formula. They know the name of Jesus as like syllables that go together. But they don't know Jesus. They don't know who he is. They don't really know the power associated with his name. They just kind of want in on the power for themselves. And it doesn't go well at all, right? I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. There it is. I said it. It should happen now. Right? And the demon's like, yeah, I know Jesus. I know who he is. Yep. Paul, got that one. Well, who in the world are you? Let's go. Right? And it does not go well. And they go out naked and wounded. The idea is they really, really lost that fight. And it serves to highlight there is power in the name of Jesus, but not just in saying it. There's power in who he is and what he came to accomplish. And for those who know him, for those who have been baptized into the name of Jesus, for those who believe in him, for those who belong to him, there is power. Now again, we don't expect handkerchiefs that we touch to heal other people of their diseases. These are, these are no small mighty works, right? They're not run-of-the-mill miracles, and they're not miracles that we can just like plan on today, though the Lord can do anything. But in the verses following, we see what maybe is the kind of miracle that we might need. We see disruptive repentance in the name of the Lord Jesus, in verses 18 to 20. We see disruptive repentance. Many, hearing the preaching about Jesus and the power of Jesus' name to heal and overcome demons and disease, they fear and honor Jesus. The name of the Lord was extolled, in verse 17. And then in verse 18, Many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. No one can stop the progress of the gospel. Right? Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And wherever we see the gospel progressing in Acts, it's noticed by those outside the church. And we might think of this as something positive, and sometimes it can be, right? This is kind of our ideal. They'll notice my love. They'll notice how different I am than everyone else around me and ask me what motivates me to be like that. And I'll say, Jesus. Now, you can tell just by how I said it, that's not the normal thing that happens. 
That can and does happen, but that's not the only way that our faith gets noticed by the broader society. Sometimes we get noticed for what we're not doing anymore. What we refuse to take part in. And the culture demands that we join them. How many on becoming believers in Jesus as adults realize, whoa, I have practices that need to be put away. My life has not been one of honoring the Lord. And, the, and friends say, come on with us. Let's do what we always do. And it becomes, let's do what we used to do. And it becomes, you lose the friend group. We had someone here who moved away a couple years ago, and that was his story when he came to faith in college. He'd been living the life of a college guy. I can do all the things. He was at Penn State. Some of you will remember Jim. And you, know, you go, whoa, you believe in Jesus? That's wonderful. And, like, and that's all wonderful when you come to church and everyone's all excited. And then you go back. And what were all those friendships based on? Chasing girls, getting drunk. And he's like, I'm not, I'm not going to do that anymore. Like, come on, man. What's, I mean, like, it's cool that you go to church and everything, but like, come on. And there was pressure to conform to do what he had always done that was not the way that Jesus was calling him to go. And he would tell you he's not perfect in how he follows Jesus even today. We get to keep in touch. He's actually planning to visit in a couple months. We're looking forward to seeing him again and continuing to, to encourage him as he walks with Jesus. But this is what we will face. And the New Testament prepared us for this. 1 Peter 4, 3-5. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And as these people turned from their futile ways of living to follow Jesus, as they turned to God from idols, there was, according to verse 23, no little disturbance concerning the way. That's one of those other ones. <laughs> like, no small miracles, no small disturbance, right? And what we read following it, you know, a crowd not even knowing why they're there, shouting for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. What's going on? So just like the miracles Jesus was doing through Paul by the power of the Spirit were no everyday miracles, there's no small commotion over these disciples' disruptive repentance. Now some groups, I think, have, have kind of taken this. They have a book burning here, and I don't know exactly what tradition each one of you grew up in, but I know some of you grew up in a tradition where you'd go to camp and... There'd be a fire, you throw your stick in the fire, and that was symbolic for what you were supposed to do when you went home, and you'd burn all your CDs before that tapes. Not burning like, you know what I mean, like with fire. That kind of burning. Right, yeah, so some, yeah, some of you are old enough, you burned your records, and then some of you burned your tapes, cassette tapes, you know, the wind, you wind them with the pencil kind of thing, so the kids are like, what is, what? it's an artifact of history now. Um, if you ever need one of those converted to digital, Paul Thorpe can do it because he can do anything. I, I only know that because I had some tapes myself, so that, that's the era that I'm from. And then it was CDs, those were the coolest thing. Uh, now you can just like delete stuff. doesn't feel as cathartic, I think. And so there was, I'm going to give up my bad stuff and I'm going to burn it and it's this display. And I, I think they actually got it from right here in this text. And maybe the practice was sometimes overdone. Maybe sometimes you realize the thing that I was pressured at camp to burn was not actually wrong or sin. And boy, I wish I had that back because that was worth something. <laughs> well, there's no regret here, right? They count the value of them they found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. This is a lot of money. 
that those who are now believers in Jesus, knowing they have Christ, they are united with him in his death and resurrection and in his life forevermore. They say, we don't need this. This is not his way. We are giving it all up. It doesn't matter how much. It could have been 100,000. It could have been a million pieces of silver. And they would gladly give it away. Give it up. Here, burn it. For the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, the Lord. But this kind of disruptive repentance that's disruptive in their own lives also becomes disruptive in the city. And it leads to the riot that we read about in the last 20 or so verses of our text. And that riot, you're like, what are we supposed to get out of that? It highlights that Jesus is indeed Lord over all. And so we see glory to the name of Jesus. Baptism into the name of Jesus, preaching in the name of Jesus, his is the only name that can save. There's power in the name of Jesus. As all of that happens in someone's life, it leads to disruptive repentance in the name of the Lord Jesus, submitting to him as Lord, and ultimately leads to glory to the name of the Lord Jesus. As Paul and others have now preached that Jesus is Lord, we talk a lot about how it means that Caesar is not, but it also means in this text that Artemis is not. It means that no one else is Lord. He alone deserves worship. He alone deserves glory. And as many people come to Christ, that really cuts into the idol-making industry. And ultimately, what we're to see here is that indeed, idols are nothing at all. We have a multiplicity of Old Testament texts telling us that. They can't speak, they can't hear, they can't do anything. They're just like the person who made them. They're not gods. And we think about this day and this huge crowd with thousands of people shouting in this massive amphitheater that they tell us is like twice the size of the one in Athens. This is a huge place filled with people shouting. And it'd feel like, this must be true, right? Artemis of the Ephesians must be great. There's a whole lot of people who think so. And they're shouting it loudly. And they may have shouted for Artemis, who's also um, known as Diana, They may have shouted for Artemis on that day, but no one does anymore, right? She's an artifact of history. And one day, no matter what anyone says today, no matter how loudly the culture shouts about any number of things, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so with all our lives, and we long to see throughout our neighborhoods and our city and our world, glory to the name of the Lord Jesus. So what's our part in all this? Baptism, preaching, power, disruptive repentance, glory to the name of Jesus. As we think about our part. I want to say a few things as we wind down. First, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus. So do you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus? Are you trusting in him and him alone for your salvation? He's God and you aren't. The reformers talked about the human heart as being an idol factory. And one of those biggest idols is, is ourselves, trying to be God. That's the, the, the sin from way back in the beginning, right? You'll be like God. 
And we want to. And we think we can. We think we're smart enough to run our own lives. We think we're good enough to hold it together. And then even as Brad reminded us through the prayer time earlier, it's like it's when things fly out of control, we realize that our little ways of making life work aren't making life work at all. They're not enough for when there's real trouble, when death is coming home to us. And so maybe you've been here for a little time, a long time, Do you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus? Have you given up on your own way? Your own way of making life work? Saying like, I kind of like Jesus, but I'm going to keep doing my things. I kind of like Jesus, and I know he's talked about this, but that's not really a big deal. I'll just pray about it later. It's not how it works. Have you trusted in Christ alone? Despairing of your way. And giving up completely, casting yourself on Jesus, who gave his own life for you to cover all your sins. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus. Second, if you have believed in the name of the Lord Jesus, you should be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is the pattern that we see over and over and over again in Acts. People believe. And like in Acts 8, here's water. Can I be baptized? Or like here, they're baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And so have you been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus? If you would like to follow the Lord in believer's baptism, we would love to talk with you about that even afterwards today. We can talk about the next time that we'll be doing baptism. We'll set up a time to talk and talk about what that means, and we would love to do that. It's our joy to walk with people as they follow the Lord in obedience to his command to be baptized in his name. And then having believed in the name of Jesus, being baptized in the name of Jesus, we bow to no one but the Lord Jesus. We bow to no one but the Lord Jesus. God is God, and we are not. Neither are the idols that we make. The name of Jesus here is stronger than demons, stronger than disease, stronger than any idols. The gods of this moment, all right, these are all things that we can tend to fear. The gods of this moment who seem like they're something are nothing. You know, well, it doesn't feel like that right now, right? Uh, that's where our, our faith is not based on how we feel about who God is. It's what he has revealed about who he is. We might hear the whole world shouting something along the lines of great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You must go here with us. And we're to say no. Because the nations are a drop in the bucket before God. Jesus is Lord and one day everyone will know. Because he's the name above all other names. Caesar's not Lord. No one else is Lord. And you're not either. I'm not. This is where it gets a little harder for us. It's like, well, I mean, I trusted in Jesus back then. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to follow him, but like, am I really? Mm. Here in the United States, if we have a civil religion, uh, it could be individualism. Like that I am the captain of my own fate. I'm the king of my destiny. I get to make my choices. Like even when we talk about Christianity, it's like, well, that's, that's neat for you if that helps you. Right? If that helps you, then that's fine. But I'm going to do my thing. And I don't, like there's no authority, ultimately, in most people's minds, outside of themselves. And it'd be wrong for us to pretend that that concept, which is pervasive in our society, has not crept into our own thinking. Right? I mean, it's what we were born with, right? We were born thinking we were the king anyway, and society's just reinforcing it. So even coming to Christ, there are ways we can think, yeah, but... 
It's kind of like the Pirate's Code in Pirates of the Caribbean. There are all these references to the code all through the movie. Uh, The first one from almost 20 years ago. Some of it, of course, has to do with parlay, as some of you will remember. But the other part, when they say, keep to the code, keep to the code, and Will's like, what is this, keep to the code? What's the code Jack keeps talking about? It's any man who falls behind is left behind. And then once Jack gets left behind to be arrested or killed, or probably more properly arrested than killed, he says plainly what is the essence of the pirate's code. They done what's right by them. Can't expect more than that. But can more than that be expected of those who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb? Those who have been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Those who have been indwelt and filled with his Holy Spirit. What kind of disruptive repentance has taken place and is taking place in your own life? Because our lives as those living under the kingship of the Lord Jesus will never disrupt anyone outside of us if they haven't first been disrupted themselves. How was your way of life disrupted by coming to believe in and belong to Jesus? Sam Alberry talks about this concept this way. He says, if someone thinks the gospel has somehow slotted into their life quite easily, without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyle or aspirations, it is likely that they have not really started following Jesus at all. And sometimes we can think we just kind of like baptize our way of life into Jesus. It's like, okay, now I do this with a Christian spin, or now I do this with also reading my Bible, or now I do this with also going to church. But that kind of faith... It's not an Acts kind of faith where they can be accused of turning the world upside down. And so what is there in our own lives that may need to be cut off in submission to the Lord Jesus? Another example from someone who used to gather with us and some of you will know, uh, Stephen Jane Quigley. They were members here for several years and then went out, um, it'll be five years ago this summer, um, to Trinity in Abington. Uh, They were in our small group for several years, and it was such a joy walking through ups and downs and God's grace with them. And Steve, uh, for those of you who know him, you know this, and for those of you who don't, you're about to. Steve loves sports. He loved, in younger years, playing sports. Um, He's loved and still loves watching sports. And he loves all the Philly, he's Philly, like everything you think about someone who's like a Northeast Philly person, that's Steve, right? And he realized, he came to Christ as a young adult, and he realized that among other things, this wasn't the only idol in his life, that sports was an idol. Again, not the only one, but a big one. And when he trusted in Christ, he realized that Jesus was infinitely more important than sports. And so he made a decision. He didn't burn all his jerseys. He didn't throw them in the fire. But he decided any time that gathering with God's people, that following Jesus and sports collide, Jesus will win. And that was hard. Especially if you're going to a church that has Sunday morning and Sunday night in the fall. You almost hope for the Eagles to be terrible because then all the games are at one o'clock. But if they're terrible, then you're just mad all afternoon. You have to just repent and repent and repent in every evening service (laughs) of your anger. And I remember this 
came home to me because our small group used to meet on Sunday nights, which now it's uh, Sunday afternoons, and we're actually having a lunch today. And if you are not in a small group, you are welcome to come to our house after church today for lunch with our small group. But we used to be on Sunday nights, and there was one fall evening where I knew, because I had been watching it too before everyone came, that the Eagles were in an exciting game, and it was probably a Cowboys game or you know, one of the big division games. And Steve and Jane showed up on time, just like always. And I didn't yet know all of Steve's story in relation to this. I'm like, oh man, that must have been tough. He's like, nope. Yeah, but I mean, it's a good game. He's like, oh man, I decided that a long time ago. And in the beginning, yeah, it was really hard. And even as I asked him about sharing this story, he said, make sure they know that I love God more than my sports now. So he made a decision about following Jesus, saying this can't be in the place that it was. Doesn't mean that his heart like immediately went there. But in that obedience, the Lord blessed him. And now he still loves his sports. And if you see him on, you know, a Saturday or something, he'll probably be wearing something. Phillies kind of wins the most, I think, in what gets worn publicly. And so that's all still fine. And it's good, it's, but it's, it's, in, his pl- it's in its place. It's, this can't be this important anymore. I love it too much. But Jesus is my king. Jesus is my Lord. And so we put it away. So what is it for you? Maybe it's not sports. For some of you, I know it's absolutely not. Maybe it's not sports. And maybe you're not in the same stage of life like Jim was when he came to Christ. And so it's not giving up these like really big, super obvious, like those are against Jesus things. But what are the things that we're holding on to, that we're cherishing in our hearts. They're like, this is fine. It's not, a, it's not a big deal. It's not a problem. Or maybe it's we're afraid of what the crowd shouts about, about what you have to believe and do to be accepted by them. You hear the expression a lot now, being on the right side or the wrong side of history. But we don't need to be afraid of being on the wrong side of history. Because the Bible tells us how history, as we know it, comes to its conclusion. When Jesus comes again, and he is Lord of all. So even if everyone else in the world were to tell you that what they think is the right way is right, and Jesus is not, and it's like, well, everyone is saying it, remember that they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There's only one name given under heaven by which we must be saved. There's salvation in the name of the Lord Jesus, power in the name of the Lord Jesus to save, to heal. Again, it's not a formula to get what we want We say instead that Jesus is Lord of all, and by his grace, with the help of his Holy Spirit, in fumbling, faltering ways, we live like he is Lord of us. Because we who are believers in the Lord Jesus belong to him. So here's a quick test for that thing that we might cherish, or a word we're about to speak. Reaching all the way back to the beginning, maybe at work or at home, or at school, or with our neighbors. A word we're to speak, an activity we're about to participate in, something we're about to watch or listen to. Can you do this in the name of the Lord Jesus? What what do you mean? Can you give thanks to God the Father through Jesus for this activity? We get that from Colossians 3.17 where Paul's writing. He says, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
And so Jesus' name isn't a magic word, but if you'd be uncomfortable thinking about Jesus and who he is with what you're doing, there's a sign. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name, the powerful, saving name of the Lord Jesus. When we say we're doing something in his name, we're doing it on his behalf. That's when we write in someone's name or speak in someone's name. We're supposed to speak only what they want said, the way they want it said. So it means to speak or act on his behalf. But in the name of Jesus also means through his power, right? We don't have the power to do it. We cannot do it. So in the name of Jesus is relying on his powerful name and the Holy Spirit who comes to give glory to the name of Jesus who empowers us to live for him. We speak and live on his behalf, by his power, and on his authority. That we are authorized by him to speak in his name for his glory, all based on who he is and what he's accomplished for us. So we don't just go around saying the name of Jesus by his grace, by the help of his spirit. We live in accord with his character and his will. Because indeed, the name of the Lord Jesus has the power to change everything. There's salvation in his name, no one else's. There's power in his name. There is life in his name. Because the name of the Lord Jesus has the power to change everything. And we get all this by grace. Not because of anything that we have done or will do, but because of who he is, what he has done, and what he has promised to do. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you that Jesus has done it all. Oh, if any bit of our salvation were up to us, we would fail the test and live in fear all our days. Would you help us to see Jesus lifted up? To see him living and dying and rising all in our place so that we can share in his life both now and forever. Would you help us to know his full and free forgiveness as we believe in him? We who have been baptized into his name. And would you give us power power to obey you, power to bow down to no one but you. Would you help us to order our lives under our Lord Jesus? Give us wisdom to know how to do that and power to carry it out. And when we stumble and fall, would you assure us of your forgiveness and your mercy? And would you make our lives a testimony to the watching world? No matter what their reaction is that they would see, there is a difference. And that difference is because of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.